We're going to be in Matthew chapter 18, so the lectionary jumps us ahead a few chapters from where we've been, so we're going to pick up at verse 15 this morning of Matthew chapter 18. If you're visiting this morning, welcome. Uh, Just know that we've been journeying through the gospel of Matthew throughout this year, and and we're starting to come to the end of that. We'll wrap this series up at at the end of November, and then we'll start a new series. I just will say, as you're looking for Matthew 18, that if you didn't get the e-news or if you haven't yet looked at it, it came out on Wednesday, or Friday, excuse me, and one of the things that you can do in that e-news, there's a lot in there, so it might take you a little bit of time to work through all of that, is that you can help me pick out a sermon series in the new year, in January, and so you have an ability to uh, vote for a series that you want, so uh, I encourage you to do that. Matthew 18, chapter, chapter 18, verse 15, begins like this. And if your Bible's like mine, it starts with the heading, Dealing with Sin in the Church. So doesn't that sound like fun? Ah, Lord, help us. Hang with me, okay? Because I know even seeing a title like that or hearing me say that can bring back some memories uh, for some people. So just hold on with me. If your brother or sister sins... Go and point out their fault, just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I, and again, truly, I tell you, that if two of you on earth agree about anything they ask for, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. Jesus, you've just promised that wherever two or three are gathered, you are with us. And so we believe that you are among us today. These are difficult words, even painful words, maybe for some of us who have memories of past incidents. Somehow, would you speak truth into us this morning? Would you help us to capture what it is that you're trying to speak in these words? Help us to hear what you want us to know so that we can be who you want us to be, God. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Olivia and I became friends with a person when we worked at the university. Uh, If you're newer here, maybe you didn't know, but Olivia, my wife, and I were co-chaplains at a university before we came to New York. And uh, a friendship was started with this person over email. It happened because of a sermon that my wife preached in chapel one day on the topic of holiness. And this woman, hearing the word holy, immediately had uh, holiness, had uh, a visceral response to, her, to it because she grew up in a holiness denomination that was very authoritarian. She wasn't Nazarene uh, like our church here, which is also a holiness denomination in case you didn't know that. Uh, but this particular holiness denomination that she had grown up with was really what I would say to you was spiritually abusive, very authoritarian. In her life, her church experience filled her with dread the moment she heard Olivia preach holiness. 
But she, to her credit, continued to listen to Olivia and in the midst of listening found that she was talking about holiness in a way that was not familiar to her. And so this is why she sent the email. The email was kind of funny, actually. She, at the end of it, said, I hope you, this email doesn't get to you because she was really putting her, herself out on the line, wanting to figure out why Olivia preached the way that she did. You see, in her church, rules were everything, and there were rules for everything. Maybe some of you have grown up in a church like that where there are rules upon rules and you have to abide by the rules, otherwise you get called out by church or church leadership. And so she had spent years growing up in this church environment and years of of feeling judged and, and mostly feeling wanting that she didn't meet the standard that was expected by her church. And so she needed a different understanding of God and faith. She needed a different church family because hers had wounded her so deeply. Unfortunately, her story is not all that unique, I don't think. I've been pastoring for 23 years now and have... This is the fourth congregation that I've pastored, and then we worked for six years at the university, and over those six years, we had lots of students come through. And over that time, I've met many young and old alike, who have had some experience of growing up in traumatic situations where they felt oppressed, judged by their church family, or maybe their own home family. The outward form of righteousness, I think, in some of these cases, is taken so seriously that it becomes almost abusive to people. Now, I want you to hear me carefully here because this is an important point. Righteousness matters. But sometimes it seems that some churches and some family groups have taken the outward form, the appearance of righteousness, so seriously that it becomes abusive. What do I mean by that? When righteousness is reduced down to rules, it becomes much easier for churches and for people, Christians, to become judgmental and legalistic. The challenge we face today with this text is, one, it's one of the texts that has been used in people's lives to do this very thing. And two, there might be some people seated in the chairs in front of me that have experienced this. When the 21st century starts talking about church discipline and how to confront sin in the church— If you don't feel like we're getting out on thin ice, then I'm going to tell you as the pastor, I feel like I'm on thin ice right now. This is a scary topic to step out on because I know people have been hurt by the church. And clearly my heart, if you've been with me and and journeyed with me the, the, what has it been, eight years, six, or eight years, eight months, six months, whatever it is, uh, (laughs) feels like eight years uh, that I've been here. That's a good thing. Um, I feel at home. That's not my heart, right? If you're new and this is your first Sunday, then you're just going to have to trust me and listen to what I say carefully and then judge me by that. So maybe before we even enter into this passage, we should ask the question, well, if this passage is so dangerous and it has caused so much problems for people, maybe we should just skip it. What do you think? No. All right. I I agree. Uh, I don't think that's a smart plan for a church to skip passages. I don't think it's a smart plan for a pastor to 
think, oh, this passage is, is difficult, or this passage may be painful or hard. Let's just bypass it. These are words in my Bible that are read. Jesus spoke them. And so somehow we, the 21st century church, have to figure out how do these words come alive in us today? How do we do this in a way that is uplifting and, and does fit the pattern that Jesus has set for us and doesn't abuse or harm people because clearly that's not why Jesus came. So we can't just avoid it even though, frankly, it might be easier to do that. So we have to move out onto the ice if you've ever come across a complicated or difficult passage in Scripture, then one of the ways that you can get to the meaning of it is to pay attention to the context. What comes before this passage and what follows it? In fact, it's not just complicated and hard, difficult passages like today's that we need to pay attention to context. You need to read Scripture always thinking about context. For instance, we've been in the book of Matthew all year. But you need to understand, Matthew is telling this story. He's gathering the information that he's observed, that he's gathered from other people. He's gathered all these bits and pieces of Jesus' story, and he's constructed this gospel in a meaningful way, in a specific way. He has a plan here. These are not disconnected pieces of stories or scriptures that are just scattered into his gospel randomly. He's positioned them for a reason. And so context helps us to understand when we come to a difficult place in Scripture, particularly in Matthew's gospel, we need to pay attention to what's going on. And so let's take a few moments just to observe what's happening at the beginning of chapter 18. In the first five verses, you'll see that there is a significant question that is posed to Jesus. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' response is staggering. It's stunning. It's why we need to value children because guess what? He says it's this one, this little child that he pulls in front of them. That's not how the world works. The world would never put the child in front of us and say this is the most important one, but that's what Jesus does. Jesus even says that whoever takes this lowly position, he references the child, is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus is inverting our power structure. In verses 6 to 9, Jesus cautions the disciples not to cause others to stumble. And maybe even is, is cueing in that we're not to cause the little ones among us to stumble. That we have responsibility for that generation. But it's not just for the younger ones among us. It's, it's really that we should not be a stumbling block for anyone in our lives. And Jesus offers some rather exaggerated um, imagery in, that, in these verses 6 through 9 to speak about how we are to be aware of our own personal shortcomings. Our own sinfulness. Before we ever bother looking at another, we need to be aware of ourselves. In verse 10, Jesus says his disciples are not to despise others. Now that could mean lots of things, but the story that he tells afterwards helps us to understand what he's talking about. It's a story that is familiar to us. It's the one sheep that wanders off and the 99 are left behind. And God cares about the one. In other words, friends, we're not to despise those that have wandered off from the faith, those that are outside the walls of our, our church or outside the, the confounds of faith. We're not to despise the world, the people of the world. In fact, 
The story is that we should go after, we should seek after them so that all of heaven can celebrate when the one has been returned to the fold. So just a, a brief context overview of this suggests that, that we need to understand these verses, 15 through 20, as being in the context of forgiveness, of reconciliation. This is not the context of judgmentalism. Shaming one another, harsh righteousness. There is no hint of legalism in any of these verses that come before it. And if we look at the story that follows the passage that I'm preaching on this morning, starting with verse 21, we get the parable of the unmerciful servant, which is a powerful, powerful story about forgiveness from God. And what we as the people of God are, how we're supposed to receive that forgiveness and then extend that forgiveness. This brief context context suggests to us that, that we need to be careful about how we understand these verses. I think it's with forgiveness and restoration in mind that we should now turn to verse 15. If you're... I think we need to pause right here, just after two words, if you're. It's worth noting that most of the times when you come to you or you're in the Gospels, in the New Testament, even the Old Testament as well, what we get in the language, in the original language, Hebrew or Greek, is a plural form of that. What we would say sometimes is y'all, right? Well... Do, you, do people in upstate New York ever say that? <laughs> I'm getting the head shakes. Nope. You all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lynn is with me. <laughs> Y'all. <laughs> so that makes sense because scripture was written in a very communal time. We live in a hyper-individualistic age. Our country is very individualistic. And so when we hear the word you, we're often thinking about me, myself, I, right? Like singular but since scripture is written in a time where, where society was more collectivist, it makes sense that the yous are more often than not, not always, the pluralized form. It also is a, a hint to us and a reminder to us and, and, and maybe a correction for us today that, friends, we are in this together. That the church is meant to be a family that is knit to, being knit together as a body, that we are not just individuals. Our individual lives have matter, of course, but we are to be united together. Christianity is not a solo journey. We're meant to be with the all. Interestingly, though, if you look at the Greek in this passage, the your, and actually all occasions where it says you in verses 15, 16, and 17 are in the singular form. So Jesus isn't speaking to us in a corporate sense, y'all. He's speaking to us individually. If you're. Now I want to say something about this. Because there have been churches that have taken this and then given the power to the leadership of the church. But if you notice, that's not written anywhere right here. It's not just the pastor that is called to do this. It's not just the district superintendent that's called to do this. Or it's not just the priest or the bishop that is called to do this. 
it's all of us. It's you as well. The laity of the church, the young and the old alike, male and female, it's all of us that should hear, if you're. If you're brother or sister. The Greek here is adelphos. And biblical scholars will tell us this word adelphos is meant to be familial language. This is not impersonal language. Sometimes we meet people that just use brother or sister because they don't know our names. <laughs> uh, it's just whatever. That they, it just fills in the space. That's not what's happening here, though, because this is family language. And I think the way to best illustrate this for you is to actually point out that Jesus uses this Greek word adelphos that's translated brother or sister here. He uses it on several occasions in Matthew's gospel. Most notably, he uses it in Matthew 12, verses 49 and 50. And I'm just going to read these quickly because I think it helps us to understand what this word, the power of this word. Pointing, so he's been, he's been um, told that his, mother's and, his mother and brother are outside, and Jesus replies, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my, my mother and my brothers. Adelphos is the word that's used here. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my Adelphos, my brother or sister. You see, this is family language for us. Jesus has proclaimed to us that he's building his church, his family. And the language that we are given here in verse 15, if your brother or sister, this in other words is somebody that you are truly connected with. The person at risk here then is not a stranger. It's not an acquaintance. If this is the kind of person uh, if the, the person is this to us, then we aren't the ones that Jesus is asking us to enter into this conversation. It's only the people that we actually know and are deeply connected to. That's who we call brother and sister. It's family language, and it's if your brother or sister, so if you have one that is deeply connected to you, then you are to proceed to take on this responsibility to do something. But before we can even get to that something that we are to do, we need to say something about the next word. If your brother or sister sins. In the Greek, it's hamartia. It's an important word for you to know. Hamartia. Sin. Just like repentance that Tyler talked about, we have all sorts of definitions of sin. And so sometimes I think it's good for us to be reminded of what the original language meant when it said it. And if you understand hamartia, then you get a picture of the bow and arrow and the target that you're aiming at. You know those concentric circles? Because hamartia or sin means missing the mark in the New Testament. Missing the mark. What is the mark? Well... That's a pretty good question for us to understand, isn't it? To answer. And in a general sense, the mark is, the, the goal that we are aiming for is to be obedient to the word of God, right? 
But that can be sometimes turned into a kind of legalism, and so we want to be careful with what we say here. We do want to be obedient to the Word of God, but what's most important for us is the living Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What's John talking about at the beginning of his gospel? He's talking about Christ. Christ is Jesus. When he comes into into creation, he is the symbol for us. He is the sign for us of what the mark is meant to be, our standard. He is the the visible form of the invisible God, as Paul says. And so he sets the pattern for us. In Jesus Christ, we see perfect righteousness on display. Amen? We could go back to Matthew chapter 5, for instance, and we remember, we've been there already, that we, we heard Jesus say, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. In other words, Jesus right there is setting the new pattern of righteousness for us. He's revealing to us the very heart of God. Jesus Christ is the mark that we are aiming for. He is the pattern that is set for us. And everything then that falls short of that standard that Jesus sets is called hamartia, sin in Scripture. So if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their faith, or fault, excuse me. I think Jesus leaves a lot unspoken here. And I wonder 2,000 years later, if Jesus saw how the church has sometimes used these words to shame and abuse people, if he, might want, if he might not have given us more clarity here. I think Jesus assumes we know the spirit that we're supposed to do this. But I don't think we should take that for granted today, so I want us to be careful. Especially because we live in a society that's shaping us. It seems to me that indignation is crouching at the door. Our culture is itching to be offended, and any perceived slight is often met with indignation. And for us Christians to think that we haven't been shaped by that, I think we are being naive. So when we begin to confront sin, if we do this with indignation, then friends, I'm afraid afraid we're going to harm people and we're not going to help them. We're not going to save them and want them or bring them back to the flock or to the fold, but actually we're going to push them away even further. So we need to be careful if we're going to go to one of our brothers and sisters to confront a sin in their life. We cannot afford to do this with a spirit of indignation or contempt because that, no doubt, will harm that person, and it will harm the witness of the church. The world, it seems to me, is filled to the brim with, with too much indignation. And what we need more of is a spirit of compassion, love, forgiveness, gentleness. Jesus brought, before he says these words, Jesus brought a little child before his disciples and said that you must become like one of these. I don't know what your experience with children has been. They're not perfect. I know that. I've had two. Uh, But you know what? I've seen children do some really, really, truly remarkable things. They can be the gentlest among us. 
the kindest, and the most forgiving. I think if we're going to live into these words and we find ourselves being compelled by the Holy Spirit to walk to one of our friends whom we dearly love and have a serious conversation, then friends, I think we need to do it like a child. We need to be ready to grab on to moments of kindness and gentleness and forgiveness. And we need to not be like what the world's doing right now and looking to cast our stones every second somebody offends us. We don't need to do this in a spirit of indignation. So, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. Notice that unlike our social media-driven world, where everything seems to be done in front of everybody else so that everybody else can see and participate, we're called to do this in private. You and I, if we feel compelled by the Holy Spirit to have a conversation like this with a brother and sister, are asked to first do this on a one-on-one basis. We don't post anything to Facebook, and we certainly don't talk about that person to other people. A private conversation done with the hopes of reconciliation. Jesus notes that if this conversation goes well and they listen to you, then you have won them over. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you have won them over. And at that point, hearing those words, your mind might be like mine, and you think, oh, this is about debating that person that has wandered off. But friends, that's not what the context suggests to us. There's nothing in chapter 18 that suggests that we are to debate with this person. So what does it mean that we've won them over Well, I think the picture that we should have in mind is the picture that comes right before this, the one sheep that has wandered from the flock. And the shepherd cares about the one, the 99 are left safe and sound behind. And that's not enough for the shepherd. Oh, it's the one that has wandered off. That person needs to be found. That person needs to be brought back to the fold, one back over. We're not in this to debate the person that has started walking down the path that we fear that they're treading, we're there to help rescue them. This is not a debate. This is a rescue mission. So, that's one verse. (laughs) Verse 15, done. And now I don't have any time for any other verses. I had a difficult task this week because I knew that if we go deep in this passage, we're not going to get very far. But I also felt that if I skimmed the surface of this passage, that we might not touch and get to the very heart of it so that you understood that we're not given license here to harm people. I want you to hear me say this because I'm your pastor. And you've adopted me as your pastor, and I've adopted you as my people. And I want to pastor a church that doesn't harm people. And I don't think Calvary has that reputation. I just know that we live in upstate New York. And lots of people in upstate New York have been harmed by the church. 
and I don't want to be one of those churches. I want the people that have wandered off from your family, your sons and your daughters, your grandkids. I want them to know that they could step back into this church and it's safe space for them. That we're never going to pull them in front and judge them. We're never going to cast our stones at them. But we're going to be the kind of family that tries to woo them back into God's family. That we're going to save a place next to you for them. That's the kind of church I want to pastor. But friends, I also don't want to pastor a church that never talks about sin. There are some churches like that. They don't want to be the abusive church, and so they've just stopped talking about sin. And so it's been about just helping people and being kind to people, and all of that's good. But the heart of the problem for us is that we are sinners, and so we somehow have to still talk about sin, don't we? So we have a difficult task ahead of us. Somehow, we have to be a church, a people that is being formed and shaped by Jesus Christ, that takes seriously the reality and truth of sin, and that sin destroys people's lives. We have to take that deeply, seriously. But we have to do so with the spirit that I've been trying to describe in just one verse. Not a spirit of judgmentalism. Not a spirit of legalism. But we want to have a spirit of, this is about rescuing people. This is a reconciliation mission for us that you and I are actually called and equipped because we have the Holy Spirit with us to be the very bridge that helps people experience the truth of Jesus Christ. I want to be a part of that kind of church. How about you? I think that's the church that's needed here in Henrietta right now in the 21st century. All around us are people that think they know who Christians are, think they know what churches are because of their experiences of the past, and you and I now get to present to them a different kind of church. I hope that you catch that vision with me. I think if we could catch it together, then we will gather this, or enter into the spirit of Matthew chapter 18. Obviously, I've left several verses unspoken. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a few things, and I am going to do a now what video like I did last week. Some of you watched it. Thank you. I need to get better at it. <laughs> you loved it so much? Really? Oh, I thought it was embarrassing. <laughs> I'm not on social media at all, so this is like, uh, yeah, this is out of my comfort zone. I hate looking at myself. Oh, my word, it's horrible. But anyway, I'll do that this week, and I'll send that out. So that you can get a little, you go a little deeper into this passage because I've only focused on one verse. An important verse for us, though. I'm going to ask our, our praise team if they would come forward. And as they do, you know what? I feel led by the Spirit. We have some time. I didn't open altars before. But I think maybe this is a good time for us to open the altars. Because... All of us in here probably have what we call the prodigals, the ones that have wandered off. And I'm wondering if this isn't maybe a time to come and, and just lay that person before Christ and say, I want, 
I want to do, I want to be whatever it is that you want me to be. How can I help your help lead this one that I love so dearly back to the faith? And maybe you want to come and, and just spend some time with the Lord at the altars. You don't have to. You could do it right where you are, but let's pray. God, I think grounding all of this text this morning is the realization that I once was lost. I once was the one that had wandered off and didn't know the truth, hadn't experienced your grace and your mercy, and didn't know that you wanted to give me a new identity to claim me as your son. But somewhere along the way, you... I was exposed to that. I was brought into the family. And for that, I want to say thank you. And I know that there are friends among me that, that have that same story. We all have been far off. We all were running and hiding, but you found us. And so God, would you help us to always be mindful? That since you found us, you want to find all people. And would you help us to be a part of that reconciliation process? We want to take sin seriously because it is so damaging. But God, we don't want to harm people. We don't want to be legalistic. We don't want to be judgmental. We don't want to be harsh in our righteousness. We want our righteousness to be grounded in relationship with you first before anything else. So would you help us, God? In these closing moments of worship, would you just stir among us? I don't know what you're wanting to say, but speak, God, to our hearts. Help us to respond to these words that, that have been given to us by Jesus Christ. We ask in Christ's name.